Hi everyone. Thank you so much for joining this week's session. Unfortunately, I started the recording uh, late in the middle of icebreakers and the icebreaker was pivotal to understanding something that will happen later. So I'm going to repeat my icebreaker question and answer here for those who are purely listening online and weren't here for the in-person event. The question was, uh, would you rather go back in time to see your ancestors or would you rather travel to the future to see your descendants? Although I can't remember my exact word for word answer at this point, I will give as close to the original as possible. My answer was that I would rather go back in time uh, to meet my ancestors because I actually don't have a desire to have children and I don't know if I ever will have any. And so if I picked to go into the future, uh, I might go into nothingness because there would be no children there for me to meet. However, um, I would really love to find out more about my ancestors because uh, my country, South Africa, is not like America, which keeps a great record of uh, families and their histories and ancestries. And you can kind of find out a lot about your, your family and your ancestors just by you know, going to a library or doing a deep dive search. But uh, South Africa doesn't keep great records like that. So I can probably only go back to at maximum my great grandfather. And even that I know very, very little about. Um, so I'd really love to get to know them and find out more about them. I do know that I descend from the Spartans and I'd be very curious to see if one of my ancestors was actually one of the 300 in Leonidas's army. Um, that would really be cool and really exciting for me, especially because I can relate to that kind of spirit um, that's always portrayed in like the movies, um, that passion and that, that dedication and loyalty and fervor that those 300 soldiers must have had for their convictions and their beliefs. Like I can totally relate to, to that. Um, and so I'd like to see if I was related to one of those specific Spartans. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the session. So today we're doing um, who wrote the gospels and um, was the gap between when Jesus died versus when they started to write the gospels too large. Um, and uh, I've put the videos on 1.25 speed. So it's just a teeny bit faster. If anyone is like, well, just like shout, but I really don't think it's that bad. I really feel like these men speak very slow and I'm just trying to save some time. In this third session, we're gonna talk about the issue of the authorship of the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The challenge is that we don't really know who wrote them, so people say. And because we don't know who wrote them, we don't know if they got the stories right. Because we don't know who wrote them, we don't know if the authors were willing to change the stories of Jesus. So authorship is a big issue. Bart Ehrman has written another book on this, and it's entitled Forged, Writing in the Name of God. And the subtitle is Why the Bible's Authors Are Not Who We Think They Are. It's true that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are anonymous. They don't say on there uh, who actually wrote them. 
And we think that the names were not formally attached to him until the Gospels were all put together in, in a codex, in, in a book format, and uh, the different Gospels needed to be distinguished from each other. But so it is true that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, those Gospels don't say who the authors are. So Bart Ehrman and these other people are accurate as far as that is concerned. But let me give you two answers. And the first one is a slightly more traditional answer. And the other one, uh, Daryl and Craig make a very interesting point in their uh, sessions. The traditional answer is that church tradition is very strong. That Matthew wrote the first gospel, Mark wrote the second gospel, and Luke wrote the third. The, the, the sayings of the early fathers as they, as they recounted what they had heard, uh, are, they're actually very, very strong in terms of the authorship. Matthew was one of the twelve, and he was certainly in a position as one of the twelve, to uh, know what Jesus did and said. We're told that Mark actually wrote the memoirs of Peter. In other words, behind the gospel of Mark is Peter and his retelling of the stories of Jesus's actions and his teachings. Uh, tradition is very strong. And tradition is pretty strong that Luke wrote the third, that he was a, a Gentile. He was not an eyewitness. He tells that in the very beginning in Luke 1. But he did his research, and he was a traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, he had access to information about Jesus. And the traditions are strong that those three men wrote the first three Gospels. And the point is not only that the tradition is strong, but all three of those are in a position to know what actually happened, to know what Jesus actually taught, and then to write it down in a trustworthy uh, manner. Uh, connected with that is the whole issue of dating. Let me show you this chart. And it's divided between kind of the evangelical scholars dating of the Gospels and more the critical, uh, I, I don't like to keep calling them liberal critics. I don't want to put tags on things, but non-evangelical scholars and where they tend to date the writing of these Gospels. And I'll come back when I'm done with this and talk about the significance. But basically, you have Mark, and evangelical scholarship thinks he wrote uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, more critical scholarship, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, Matthew, the date range is from the 60s to the 80s. Luke is from the 60s to 80s as well. And John would have been written 80s to 90s, uh, somewhere in that late date range. In other words, they were all written within about 60 years of the events. Now, you may say, boy, 60 years, that's a long time. But it's in an oral culture, it's not that long. But it's not that long when you compare it to other ancient biographies as well. Take Alexander the Great, for example. Alexander died in 323 BC, and his biographies were written in the late first century AD into the second century AD. So uh, Alexander the Great's biographies were written about 400 years after Alexander had lived. But we trust those biographies of him. We, we think that they, they convey basically accurate information. So when you look at that 400 years, then all of a sudden, 50, 60 years in an oral culture, are not really, it's not really that long of a time period. And so we have good, strong traditions as to who wrote the first three Gospels. They were people who would have known Jesus, would have known, accurately known about Jesus or his teachings. And it was written within a relatively short time frame. So that's one way to, to look at this whole issue of authorship that um, is still trustworthy. But there's another way to uh, look at the whole issue of authorship, and both Daryl and Craig spend some time in their sessions, as I said, talking about it. The challenge is this. Because we don't know who wrote the Synoptic Gospels, 
the church was sitting there with these three anonymous gospels and they wanted people to trust them. They wanted people to believe them. So they just went out and they said, hey, let's pick Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're respected people. Uh, people will respect their writings, will trust their writings, and let's stick their names on the first three gospels. So that, that's how the charge is often uh, made. And in fact, there is some in a sense, there's some truth to that, because when we look at other books that were written uh, in after Christ, uh, supposedly about him, that's exactly what happened. Somebody would make up a story about uh, Jesus or Paul, uh, in this case, and, and so they, it's the Acts of Paul and Thecla. So supposedly this is things that Paul wrote. Um, we have the, the Acts of Peter. And somebody made up a bunch of stories, and then they wanted people to believe it, so they went and got a very well-known, respected person, Peter, and they attached his name to it. So we know that that's actually what did happen. Um, the question is, is that what happened with Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And the argument is this. If, if the church was willing to just go get a name and attach it to an anonymous gospel, would they have picked Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And the argument is, no, you would not have picked uh, these three people to give these anonymous gospels credibility. So let's think about it. Let's start with Mark, because it was the first gospel written. Who's Mark? Oh, he's that guy who ran home to mommy or whatever in the middle of the first missionary journey. Oh, Mark, he's the guy that split Paul and Barnabas. Why, why would you attach his name to the second gospel? There's no reason to. Well, the only reason is that there was a very strong tradition that Mark wrote that gospel, and the church honored that tradition, and it was important to them to get it right. And there's another way to look at it, and that is, since we know from Papias, uh, through Eusebius, that Mark was really writing down the memoirs of Peter. Why is it not the Gospel of Peter? I mean, that's the person who stands behind it, right? Well, apparently the church wasn't willing to ignore the traditions about who wrote the second Gospel. The tradition is strong that Mark wrote it, even though Peter stands behind it. But hey, the tradition is that Mark wrote it, and so they're going to put the name Mark on the second gospel. That tells you how the church viewed authorship. They weren't willing to ignore the traditions. Uh, if you think of Matthew, you go, well, he's one of the 12. Yeah, but he was a tax collector. And again, in our day and age, it's probably a little hard to understand that the total disgust, perhaps even hatred, that Jews had to tax collectors because these Jews were turncoats. They were traitors. They sided with the Romans. So it's not that they just took your money. It's that they gave them to the Romans. Why on earth would you pick, especially a gospel like the first one that is obviously geared for a Jewish audience, why would you pick the one disciple the Jews would dislike the most? It doesn't make any sense unless the church understood that Matthew wrote that gospel and they respected that and they attached his name to it. What about the third gospel? Why would you pick Luke? Well, Luke was a, he was not an eyewitness, but he was part of Paul's traveling group. And so, I mean, that bodes well for him. But still, he was a Greek. He, he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't there. He wasn't an eyewitness of Jesus' events. Why would you attach a Gentile's name to a gospel when you're trying to get the right name to give the book credibility? Well, it doesn't make any sense, does it? So the conclusion is that the church was not willing to willy-nilly attach people's names to Gospels. What the church was willing to do was to respect and to accept the strong traditions as to the authorship of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even though Peter is behind Mark, and then to attach those names to him. So this whole thing on authorship, the argument I think falls apart. Uh, 
Um, while they were anonymous gospels, the church tradition is very strong that it was Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These people all had direct or very close indirect access to the stories of Jesus. And the church wasn't willing to attach just well-known names to gospels to get them believed that they wanted to honor the traditions. And so we have the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, and the gospel of Luke. I think that's a fair conclusion to draw. I really don't understand this double mute scenario. Okay. <laughs> uh, before we go to the second video, did everyone follow his logical thinking of why we ascribe those authors to the gospels? The fact that they don't make sense is what gives them credibility. I won't go on and on if, if you all are following. Awesome. Okay. And the speed was fine for everyone? Okay, good. All right, so now we're gonna discuss the gap. Was the gap too long between when they were written versus when Jesus died? Well, in the second session, we're gonna look at the whole issue of oral tradition, oral tradition. The challenge that's coming these days uh, is basically saying that there was a gap between when Jesus did or said something and when it was written down. And so that gap period between the event and when it was written, uh, stories were told by word of mouth, hence oral tradition. And by using the word tradition, I'm not implying that it wasn't real, but that's the phrase, oral tradition. And the challenge is, is that during that period of oral tradition between the event and writing it down, that even if the writers of the gospels were eyewitnesses, memory's faulty, or as one person says, memory leaks. And because memory is faulty, we can't trust that period of time. So it doesn't matter what they wrote, their memories would have been faulty by the time they got to writing it down. Uh, kind of the poster child for a lot of the current attacks on the believability and trustworthiness of the Bible comes from a professor named Bart Ehrman. And so let me introduce him just so I can refer to him. Uh, Bart Ehrman is a professor at uh, Chapel Hill in North Carolina. He went to Moody and then to Wheaton, two very conservative schools, went to Princeton and studied with Professor Metzger, and he became an agnostic. He doesn't think that the Bible is true. Uh, he certainly doesn't think that Jesus is God. And Professor Ehrman is really aggressively attacking the historical believability of the Bible right now. And he seems to be writing a different book on every different aspect uh, of this whole issue. And he's a very good scholar. He's very bright. Um, he's a very good writer. And he's an extremely good debater. And if you just go to YouTube and look at Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N, uh, you'll see debates all over the place with him. And as you watch him, you'll realize why he's having the impact he is, because he's an extremely good debater. Uh, the book he wrote on this particular issue is called How Jesus Became God, The Exaltation of a Jewish Teacher from Galilee. See, so he's perfectly willing to say that Jesus was a Jewish teacher, but he's not God but the church made him into God, and hence the title of the book, How Jesus Became God. Uh, in earlier days, the, the phrases that were often used was historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. The historical Jesus is the Jesus that actually lived. The Christ of faith is what we meet in the Bible. And the implication for many people is that those two people are not the same person. There was an historical Jesus, but the church changed him into something else, and he became the Christ of faith. Um, so that's just another way of, another way of talking about this issue. Before we actually get into this topic, again, let me say something, and I said it in the orientation, I think it was. How do you prove this? How do you prove 
that A, the church changed the teachings of Jesus? Or how do you prove that the church didn't change the teachings of Jesus? How do you prove that the historical Jesus is the Christ of faith or isn't? Where is the bar? How high do you have to set the bar to, to say, I well, I believe these scriptures actually are true and that they do accurately reflect the historical Jesus? So where, where do you set that bar? What I wanted to add to that discussion is, is, a, is a slight clarification. Just because you can't prove something doesn't mean it's not true. Now, I know there's a double negative in there, but think about it. Just because you can't prove something doesn't mean it's wrong. To state it another way. Just because you can't prove something doesn't mean it's not authentic. So we go through this whole discussion of, of the issues of memory and how reliable it is. And you may or may not be able to prove something, but that doesn't make it so. That just means you can't prove it. All right. So kind of an important clarification. Okay. What is oral tradition? Well, I already briefly said it, but let me repeat it. Uh, when it comes to oral tradition, it's stories of what Jesus did and said were passed on by word of mouth. We sometimes just call it orality. I mean, orality is a, a broader term, but it's the same kind of thing. So there was an event, and then there was, when it was written down, and there was this gap uh, in between where the stories of what Jesus said and did were passed along by word of mouth. That's called the period of oral tradition. So let's just talk about uh, that period of time just a little bit. Number one. Jesus lived in an oral culture. In fact, most cultures in our world today are oral. Most, most cultures do their teaching like this. Maybe not on video, but they do it by word of mouth. Uh, they don't do it by writing. Um, the vast majority of people in Jesus' days, days were, were illiterate. I mean, they, they couldn't read or they couldn't write. They weren't stupid. They just couldn't read and write. And so uh, you, you have this oral culture where people are used to retelling accounts or stories, whatever word you want to use, by word of mouth. And this partially explains the whole rabbinic method of teaching. The rabbis taught by repetition, and they would say it over and over and over and over again until their students really knew what they were trying to teach. And in fact, we know that Jewish boys, again, sorry, historically, those Jewish boys that were in the schools, um, could actually memorize large chunks of the Torah. You know, I know we, we don't live in an oral culture, uh, at least in Western culture today. And you know, we, we write it down so we can forget it. We can write things down so we don't have to remember it, right? No, we, don't, we just simply don't live in an oral culture. We live in a, in a written culture. But in that day, uh, it was an oral culture, lots of repetition, and the, the, the little kids would memorize huge portions of the Torah, of what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And, you know, they didn't have anything else that they were doing. They weren't texting. They weren't on Facebook. Uh, they, weren't, they, they weren't playing soccer and basketball and, and baseball and football and da-da-da. I mean, all the distractions of modern culture. They weren't doing that. Uh, they were learning Torah. And everything they did centered on the Torah. So whether they were learning to, to write or, I don't know, to spell or whatever be the case, it was Torah, 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 over and over and over and over again. And we know that it's an oral culture, that's the rabbinical method, and you can actually train your mind to memorize huge amounts of data. Uh, it, it certainly is possible, and we know that they did it. So this, this concept of an oral tradition and an oral culture is what's bridging the gap between the event and when it was written down. Now, there's, there's really three basic approaches to orality, how we, we view it. Um, and let, let me just go over those. First of all, there is what's called an informal uncontrolled 
It's a cultural kind of thing, informal, uncontrolled. So when we talk about informal, what we mean is that anybody can retell the story. Okay, there was just anyone is available could retell the story. In our case, of what Jesus did and said, it was uncontrolled. This approach to orality says is uncontrolled, meaning that there was no controls for accuracy. Anybody could tell the story, and there were no controls in place. And what happens in that kind of setting is that stories can change dramatically, right? Change dramatically. So that is informal, uncontrolled. The second kind of culture is where it's formal and controlled. And by formal, we mean that only certain people were allowed to retell the stories. Not everybody could tell the stories of Jesus, if, if this were what was going on in the first century. Uh, nobody, just not anyone could retell the story. It was formal, only certain people, the disciples or the eyewitnesses or, or something like that. And this was a, uh, the control, and again, this is again more rabbinic. The control was that you had, in this case, for, for Judaism, you had rabbis who exerted all this control so that only they could tell the story and they made sure that the stories were told correctly. Now, if the first century Jewish church uh, was characterized by this formal, controlled kind of approach to orality, then you get some real problems. Um, you, you can't explain the variations among the synoptics. Uh, you look at the same story in Matthew and Luke, sometimes Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and what you're going to see is that they're not exactly the same. They, they, they mean the same thing, but they're not exact, they don't use exactly the same words. If the first century Christian culture was formal, uncontrolled, you wouldn't have those kinds of variations. So there is a third kind of cultural approach to orality that most biblical scholars are comfortable with. It's called informal controlled. Informal controlled, sometimes called guarded tradition as well. And in a culture that is where their orality is characterized by informal controlled, what it means is that anybody can retell the stories. Okay, it's informal. But it is controlled because there are people in the community who uh, respect, who were respected, who perhaps were eyewitnesses or, or people who had really learned the stories in the past. But they exerted a kind of control over the telling of the stories. So you can imagine a situation where, it, again, it's informal. Anybody could retell the stories of Jesus and someone saying, you know, Jesus said this. The, in a controlled kind of culture, these respected people would rise up and they would say, no, that's not what happened at all. I was there or that's not how I was taught it. Okay, so informal controlled means that anybody can retell the stories of Jesus, but that there were people in the community that exercised control over those stories, allowed some kind of variation perhaps in details, but certainly not the core of the passage. This, these three different ways of looking at orality really came from a, a missionary named Kenneth Bailey. And Kenneth Bailey was a missionary in the Middle East for years, and he, he worked among the Bedouin people. And what he realized was you could go to different areas of the Middle East and hear the same basic story, even though these two groups of people had never met. I go, how does that happen? Well, the stories are told. Anybody can retell the stories. But it was recognized that part of the function in, in, in the Bedouin tribe was that there would be respected people who would exert control over the, uh, the stories that were being told. And he took what he learned from the Bedouin people and applied it to the gospel stories. And what we find is that it, it's a beautiful fit. It's a beautiful fit in that the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that there's the same basic stories being told. There must have been some kind of control, but it wasn't so absolutely tight that every single little detail is exactly the same. Most New Testament, at least evangelical scholars, are comfortable with this informal, controlled approach to oral tradition. 
So the initial answer to uh, Professor Ehrman and, and people that, uh, that are following suit is that, yes, there was a gap. There was a period of time in which the story between the event and writing it down where people remembered. But they lived in an oral culture. They were used to training their minds. They were used to memorizing exactly large pieces of data of stories. And while anyone was able to retell the stories of Jesus, it's pretty clear from the text that there were respected people in the community, disciples, apostles, uh, people who had seen Jesus, there would, would be some groups of people that would exert control, that they apparently exerted control. And they, they kept the stories as being accurate. So if you, if you apply the informal controlled model of oral tradition to the Bible, it means that you can trust it. All right, that's the point I'm trying to make, is that you can trust it. Now, there's a few other things I want to point out about memory. Number one, we remember core events better than details, don't we? Details might get a little fuzzy over time, but we, we do a much better job at remembering core information in stories. Um, again, all you have to do is look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There is variation on the same story, but not at the core. It's that the variations are uh, using different synonyms or the, some of the little information or, or this writer teaches, remembers this one piece of information, this writer omits that. All right, so you, you, you have the core is the same. The variation is in some of the details. So we remember core events better than all the details. The, the second and related to that is that corporate memory or pooled memory is more effective than individual memory. When, when, um, when groups get together, Daryl in his talk talks about a funeral. And when people get together in a funeral, people are telling different stories, but together they, are, they have a pooled or corporate memory. And that corporate memory is, can be very accurate as to the person who's passed away because corporate memory uh, is better than individual memory. A third factor, and again, I've already mentioned this, but I'll say it again for emphasis, is this is rabbinic culture. In rabbinic culture, uh, they cultivated skills of memory. I mean, it wasn't that unusual for a rabbi to memorize the entire Torah, the entire, again, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, all of it, all of it. <laughs> that's, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? But it wasn't an odd out event. I mean, we know that this happened, and it happened multiple times. And it was achieved through repetition, through focus, through not focusing on texting and email and Facebook. It's, it's you're focusing on Scripture, and you're memorizing, and it's everything. You know, it's interesting uh, that we know that some uh, Greek children, depending upon the schools, were encouraged or perhaps forced to memorize Homer's entire Iliad and Odyssey, all of it. Now, there's about 100,000 words in the Iliad and the Odyssey together. Luke's gospel is about 20,000 words. So, Greek, it was not that unusual for Greek children to memorize documents five times as long as the book of Luke. So, again, they live in an oral culture. This is just how they, how they remember, how they teach, how they pass on their traditions. It's done orally. And so, the mind is capable of so much more than we in the Western world give it credit. Our brains can really remember a lot of information, even if we don't push it. So again, rabbinic culture is a big deal. Fourthly, memory tends to be more precise when something's at stake. Darrell gives the illustration of the Challenger uh, disaster and some studies that were done on uh, several years after the Challenger spaceship blew up, what people remembered. And they certainly remember the core of it, but they, they 
a lot of the details were getting fuzzy in people's minds. And Daryl asked the question, I wonder if they pulled future astronauts, people who were younger when the Challenger disaster happened, but kids who wanted to become astronauts, I wonder if their memory of the details of the Challenger disaster are more accurate. And I think it's very fair to assume that yes, uh, their memories would have been much better. And to bring this over into scripture, uh, this is life for us. This is the word of God for us. In times of persecution, this is what we're being persecuted for. And when something is really at stake, we really remember it a lot better. We remember it a lot better. Another point that I wanted to make in this whole issue of leaky memory, oral tradition, and that is our assumptions. Now, I have certain assumptions. I, I think that they're supported by facts. Uh, can't prove it, of course, but it's, um, I, have, I have assumptions. You have assumptions. Liberal critics have assumptions, too. That's a very important point. N nobody comes at this whole debate uh, completely, um, what's the word, completely vanilla, com not, not biased at all. Um, everyone has assumptions. And in liberal scholarship, there is a real assumption against biblical history. A great example of this is the Jesus Seminar. It was a group of quite a few scholars that used to sit down with the four different colored beads, and they used to go through the New Testament, and they would vote, does this saying come from Jesus? And so, for example, if, and then they would vote by putting beads into a bowl or something. And so, if everyone thought that this verse, that Jesus actually said it, they'd put a red bead in. If they think that Jesus said something like this verse, they would put a pink bead in. If they think that Jesus didn't say it, but he might have said something like it, they would put a gray bead in, and if they think that Jesus could not have said anything like this particular verse, they would put a black bead in. And the result of their voting is that over 50% of the Bible was black. In other words, Jesus never said it, never said anything like it. 50% gone. Gone. Well, I've got to think that there's some presuppositions in play for that kind of historical uh, doubting of, of, of historicalness. Let me take an example. Let's say uh, you don't think that Jesus ever intended to start a church, okay? All that he was going to do was going to uh, teach people to be kind and gracious to one another, something like that. Well, if you don't think that, then when you come to a verse where Jesus says to Peter, here, you, are the, you are the rock and uh, here are the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to build my church on you. Well, obviously those verses, Jesus could have never said them because we all know, all know that Jesus never intended to start a church. Well, we don't know that. That's an assumption that the critical scholar is making. Or the Son of Man sings. If, if you don't think that Jesus saw himself as the coming apocalyptic judge, the Daniel Son of Man, then in, in Jesus says to Pilate, you know, or to the Sanhedrin, that, uh, you know, you're judging me, but I'm going to be coming on clouds. And, you know, the implication is I am the Daniel Son of Man, and, and you're judging me now, but someday I will judge you in the heavenly courts. You know, you look at a saying like that, and say, well, Jesus never thought he was Daniel's son of man. He never thought that he was uh, an apocalyptic divine character. So obviously Jesus could not have said that. That kind of assumption plays a very large role in trying to decide what's authentic and what's not authentic. So there's a lot of assumptions at play. It's not just pure science, okay? It's, it's really not just pure science. It is uh, a lot of assumptions are, are, played, are at play. Sixthly, and this won't impress a, a liberal critic, um, but it, it should give you some encouragement, and that is the role of the Holy Spirit. Remember in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14, 26, Jesus says, But the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
will instruct you, and he's talking to the 11 disciples at this point, will instruct you regarding all things and cause you to remember everything that I have told you. Now, that verse isn't going to convince a skeptic that there should be more red in the Bible and less black. But it should encourage you, and it should encourage me. And we think back to this period of oral tradition, and do we really believe that their memories uh, were accurate? The answer is, for Christians, I think, at least evangelical Christians, that it was one of the functions of the Holy Spirit was to keep the, the memories of the disciples accurate. So, do I have any trouble believing that someone in a rabbinic oral culture under the power of the Holy Spirit remembered the stories about what Jesus said and did accurately? No, I don't have any trouble at all. My memory's leaky, but I don't think their memory was leaky at all. So anyway, those are some of the arguments that we can um, make about this. And let me say one more thing in closing. Why did the church take so long to write the Gospels up? Now, we're going to talk about this in a, in a later lesson. But they didn't write right away. They, they were, there was a period of oral tradition. And why wait so long? Whether it be 20, uh, 30 years, uh, why wait so long? Well, first of all, it's the nature of orality. They, they would not have felt the need to write things down. It, it, they have an oral culture. And, you know, for in our culture, yeah, it'd be really strange not to write it down pretty quickly. But in their culture, it wasn't strange. There wasn't a real need to because of how they used their memory. But secondly, that culture, and I think really all cultures, have a very strong preference for eyewitnesses. In other words, if you could read about the Holocaust or you could talk to a Holocaust survivor, which one would you want to do? Well, obviously, we'd want to hear the story from someone that was actually there to understand it and then the cruelty and just, just everything about the Holocaust. That there is a, maybe it's human nature, but it's, uh, I think, certainly in uh, first century Jewish culture, there was a real preference to hear the first-hand accounts being told. And so as long as there were first-hand witnesses, the apostles and uh, you know, some of the 120 that were in, in Acts at the beginning uh, who experienced Pentecost, there's going to be a real preference just to have them tell the stories, again, especially in an oral culture. Eusebius is a 4th century Christian historian, and he cites Papias, and Papias was early 2nd century. So Papias says that he would rather hear the living voice of someone than read it. Well, that's what we're talking about. People have a preference to hear firsthand uh, accounts of things. And so, just like in the Holocaust, why, why do we start having more and more written accounts of the Holocaust? Because the survivors are dying. And so we need to get it written down. But while they're around, it's pretty, it's pretty strong to actually listen to it. So I, mean, I think those are good reasons why uh, the Gospels weren't written right away. There was no perceived need to, not really until the eyewitnesses started to die and the church started to really spread uh, around the world where there wouldn't be as many eyewitnesses around. So anyway, that's the whole issue of orality or oral tradition. Um, and again, the, the answer is that while my memory may leak, in a rabbinic, repetitive, oral culture, uh, superintended by the work of the Holy Spirit, we can trust the memories of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Okay, so I'm going to make two more points, and they came from the other um, professor that we usually listen to. His videos were a lot longer, and I figured it would be better to listen to this guy so that we could have two in one session. Um, another thing that he, he states, and this is a, a theory that a lot of scholars hold to, is that uh, during that gap period between the gospels that we know versus Jesus, when Jesus died, 
there was there were other written accounts or one written account that already existed and scholars refer to this document as q which is short for quelle which is some latin word and i don't remember what it means um it's a theory and the reason they say that is because when they examine matthew mark and luke it feels like they're they're grabbing information from another source okay it's a theory a lot of scholars believe it uh, whether you believe that or not is up to you but um a lot of people hold to that and they say like when when luke in the beginning of his gospel says um many have already taken it upon themselves to gather an orderly account of these events he's not only referring to oral stuff he's saying there's already other people who have written some stuff down maybe they didn't write like the entire life of jesus but there had been other people who had already written stuff down now we wouldn't consider those things to be the word of god but the point is that there might have been other documents floating around that were written way earlier that had different accounts of jesus's life and people could pull memory from that document um means source oh wow thank you and i know that's right because that sounds familiar <laughs> is that a law thing no i looked oh. it up <laughs> <laughs> oh okay <laughs> all right and then the second point i'm going to make after we do a quick exercise so i'm going to call on some or maybe all of you and ask the same question when i asked the icebreaker and i said would you rather travel back in time to meet your ancestors or to the future to meet your descendants what was my answer steven go as much as you can remember, as little as you can remember, it doesn't matter. Yours was past um, because, well, partly because you uh, don't have kids and weren't sure you're going to have kids. Um, I don't remember anything past that. That's fine. Donna. Uh, after that, you said that um, in your culture, there's not like a very thorough genealogy of your past. And so um, it would be great for you to. to you know, learn about that. And then you also mentioned that your family could have been Spartans and you wanted to know if one of your ancestors was like one of the 300. Okay. Uh, Dalton. Um, you also added that you felt like that fits you because you felt like you would fit into the, the 300 as well. Okay. Jack. And you feel free to repeat. That's not like you can't repeat stuff other people said. Like, what do you remember? Okay. Um, I remembered that you wanted to go back because of you didn't you weren't sure if you wanted to have kids and that um, um, oh also I don't know if you had included that in like the initial um, part of your icebreaker but you said that like one of the words in your family meant rhythm um, maybe like a maiden name or something um, and that fits because you're also a dancer yeah all right, Troy, got any last words to add? <laughs> no, she's taking the rhythm one. She got that one. Um, so I think we got all the bases covered. Um, yep. Okay. So between just, what was that? Five, five of you, we reconstructed my story. Okay. And had I been a very important person to you that you really wanted to learn from, you might have paid even more attention when I was speaking, right? Okay. And that was just five of you. Now imagine the bigger the crowd, 
right? The more people there, if they had to come together and um, recollect the story, you would be able to reconstruct what someone said pretty accurately, okay? And we don't even have an oral tradition. We aren't trained in that way, but yet we still in our culture can still do the same thing. And so think about that. You had 12 disciples who were with Jesus all the time, essentially, pretty sure that Jesus didn't just say stuff once and never again, okay? Um, and this, I think, was mentioned in the other video, which we didn't watch, which, by the way, I'm uploading both of those to YouTube. So if you wanted to go and hear the other guy speak and hear his reasons, a lot of it's the same, but he does add some stuff. You're welcome to go watch that in your own time. Um, and now I lost my train of thought. I hate it when I do that. <laughs> um, Dalton, remind me where I was. I know you pay attention. <laughs> you were on oral tradition. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus being a rabbi. Okay, so rabbis in that culture, um, they would repeat the same stories and teachings over and over and over to their disciples. So the theory is that Jesus was a rabbi, and so he would have done the same thing. He would have said the same stories over and over. And I mean, some of that is similar. I mean, we have Jesus saying similar things in different accounts, but also Jesus' ministry was three years long, and we have just a fraction of the things he said. So maybe a theory is the reason we only have those things is they were the most repeated things. As Jesus walked around, he said these similar things over and over. Um, and you also have the disciples who, when Jesus would say something, would then take him aside afterwards and ask more questions about it, right? So then you're, if there's repetition again and again. And so you have already an oral culture that's trained to really listen and remember what people say. You have a, a rabbi who likely was saying the same thing over and over. You have a group of 12 people who heard all of his sayings through his whole life. And then you still had the other disciples who followed him. They might not have been with him 24 seven for three years, but they were with him for extensive amounts of time. And they could also add to the story and keep the facts straight. And then you also had the people who just came to listen to Jesus speak, which was thousands of people, right? So if you put all that together, you can have a great amount of confidence that these people were able to remember what Jesus said, even if it took them 20 to 30 years to write it down. And skeptics usually think during that 20 to 30 years, everyone just kept quiet until one day a guy's like, mm, I'm going to write it down. No, they, the stories kept being told and told and told and preached in churches. Like this is something that was done over and over. So it didn't become, you know, lost in memory, right? It's, it's the same reason that like the children who grow up in Christian families can tell you the most common stories in the Bible without rereading them. They might not have the same culture as the Jewish children where they had to know it like word for word, but they can tell you the basic story of Noah's Ark, of Moses, of Mary and Joseph, because from young, they were taught the same thing over and over. So as an adult, if for 20 years, you're hearing the same stuff straight from the moment Jesus died all the way through to the first gospel, the memory was super accurate. Um, and remember, you had eyewitnesses who, if anyone did come and say something crazy, like if one of you had said, Cassandra said she wanted to have children, you all would have been like, no, <laughs> she, 
She definitely didn't say that. So you had that same accountability between all the people that heard Jesus speak. There could have been people who would have been like, you're crazy, he didn't say that. And then that version would have been eliminated. Cool. Um, I have a lot of questions. Um, but before we do that, again, any comments, questions from you guys, concerns? <laughs> oh, you guys are so quiet. Okay. Now we're going to see how well you listened. Donna didn't take notes today, so I'm interested to see how much she's going to. No, I tried to retain as much as I could. <laughs> let's see. Um, let's see how, how, how Jewish you are with your oral well, tradition roots. <laughs> yeah. Probably not that. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Can you still hear me online? Because they're mowing the grass behind me. Okay. Question one. Why do we think the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses? You can give as much or as little information to your answer as you can. Um, I think it's because we, we um, or historians accept that it was a formal and controlled or excuse me, um, informal controlled storytelling. Okay. And so those that were relaying the story, you know, anyone could do it, but the people that had been there would correct them if they were wrong. So that is a better point when you're trying to argue that they remembered it. But we want to know what is a good argument for it, that the person who originally wrote it down was an eyewitness. So like they are who they said they are. Luke was Luke. It wasn't Ashley saying she was Luke and saying that she followed Paul around and heard the stories. How do we know that those are the people who actually wrote the Gospels? Because Luke was a Gentile. Yes. Okay, I like where you're going. Do you want to elaborate on why that would be a good point? Well, well, we got because I mean, he since his his name wouldn't be, I guess, the prominent choice for, uh, you know, for I guess validity, as you would say. Um, yes. So I mean, it goes back to I guess when we were talking about I mean embarrassing facts. Yes. <laughs> Good. Uh, the other guy in his, when he's talking, he goes back to the principle of embarrassment. And so he says the same thing. He just has a different name for it. And he says, why would they choose those authors? Like principle of embarrassment. I mean, who here wouldn't think that if, if someone came to you and said, we have three gospels, wouldn't your, your first thought be um, Peter, James, John? Wouldn't that like be your immediate, those probably the three people that wrote them if you didn't know the Bible? Like I would have thought that they were with Jesus the most. They were like his favorites. I don't know if I can say that, but in my mind they were. <laughs> so I would have thought they would write it, right? Or if not them, then surely the 12, like let's pick in the 12, right? But the fact that we have people that weren't one of the 12, right? They were followers of the 12, and that they still chose to name them the gospels after those people. So like he said, instead of saying 
This is the gospel of Peter, even though the early church had a tradition of saying, we know that Mark got his information from Peter. They still said this was Mark because they were being honest. Mark wrote it. We're not going to call it Peter's gospel because Peter didn't write it, even though we know the information came from Peter. And then his point about Matthew being a tax collector and how much they were hated. If you wanted to spread this gospel among the Jews, you wouldn't pick the name of a guy who came from an occupation that everyone absolutely despised. Okay. Um, and then I kind of answered the, another point I wrote down, which is uh, we have internal and external evidence. So we have internal evidence in the Bible that speaks about these people being eyewitnesses. We know from other people that Matthew was an eyewitness, right? So it makes sense that he wrote down the things that he did. We know Luke was a traveling companion of Paul and he states in his own gospel, oh, I spoke to other eyewitnesses, okay? Um, and then you have external evidence, which is the early church fathers who would say stuff like, um, Matthew, who was one of the 12, wrote blah, blah, blah. Or um, like I said, saying that Peter, they know that Peter was behind Mark, stuff like that. So you have other people in their own writings saying that they know these are written by those authors way back before they officially wrote the gospel of Luke. So for a long time, they just circulated as documents that were anonymous, but only anonymous in writing, not anonymous in knowledge. It's like if Ashley makes a painting and shows it to us and like, hey, this is my painting. Even if she doesn't sign her name, all of us, when we look at that painting, we know it's hers. If someone walks into our house, we'll be like, oh, Ashley did that, you know? And they say Ashley dies and that painting lost for a hundred years if someone finds something I wrote down where it's like, oh, Ashley brought in this painting of a flower into small group one day. That's what I mean by church tradition, early church tradition. The people back then knew that they wrote those gospels. And so they had no need to write in the actual document, hey, this is by so-and-so because everyone just knew it. And then when those people started dying off, then they felt the need to at the top write the gospel according to Mark or Luke. Question two, um, this is a question I basically ask every single time we do a topic. What happens if we reject the texts um, because we don't believe that actual eyewitnesses wrote them? We have to reject all of other historical texts. Yes, we would have to reject everything because the overwhelming evidence points to that they were eyewitnesses they wrote in an extremely short time after it happened. And all other eyewitness accounts that we have were written hundreds of years after those people lived. And so eyewitness is a relative term for those people because most of them weren't eyewitnesses, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> this is a little bit more difficult. If you were writing notes, you'll probably be fine. Donna, this is a test for you. <laughs> What are the three approaches to orality and explain each? So he explained there were three different types of orality, three different types people preserved stories. What were they? And explain what each of those are. Well, I've written, I've written notes, so I, <laughs> I can answer the question. Um, it was informal, uncontrolled, which is anyone can retell the story. 
no controls in place for accuracy. Um, formal and controlled, which is only certain people can tell the stories. And then the informal control, which is also known as guarded tradition. Anyone can tell the story, but people who knew the story um, exercise control over it. So if ever there was someone who was saying, oh, well, this happened, then the person who was there or knew it better would say, no, no, no. That's not how it went. Right. Follow-up question. Which one of these three do we believe the Bible uses? Helene, you can't answer. <laughs> Informal control. Informal controlled. Um, do we have any modern examples of informal controlled settings? He gave an example when he was speaking. Uh, Holocaust survivors, right? Mm. No, not that one. Just <laughs> I was making a joke. <laughs> Do we have any examples of a culture where this is currently being executed? They have a an informal controlled oral culture that's still in existence today. Dalton, you don't remember? It's still like Jewish culture is still very, because they still have to memorize the Torah. They still have to memorize Torah, but it's not as intense as it once was. Yeah. And theirs is not um, what about indigenous people? Hold on. <laughs> the Jewish people, theirs is not informal control. Theirs is formal control. Mm -hmm. Because the, only the rabbis can tell the stories. Mm -hmm. And then the, when the, the younger ones become rabbis, and they can tell it. So the woman in the marketplace, shh, don't talk. You're not a rabbi. So it's even though they might be preserving their stories, it's not the same as what the Bible did with the... the mm -hmm informal control. So the example he gave was there are Middle, Middle Eastern tribes still in existence today that have never interacted, but they come from the same original tribe that they've split up over hundreds of years. And they have the same stories that if you go to them and listen, they're exactly the same stories. And anyone in the tribe can tell them, but they have people in the tribe that are set up as like the leaders, the people who control the stories and they will teach them and if anyone else says it off, they'll be like, mm -mm, this is how it's said. And that's still today. And so um, that's actually how this guy who discovered that came up with this theory for the early church of how, since they already came from a formal controlled culture, how it would have evolved into an informal control because of the command to spread the gospel. So everyone had to be telling the stories, but they still retain control in that the eyewitnesses kept them in line with the actual story. Um, why is it not hard to believe that the first century Christians or apostles could remember the gospel stories accurately? There, I have like six or seven points. So there's a lot of things you can say here. Um, two of the ones that were stuck out for me is, uh, were that it was something really important to them. So they were gonna remember it better. And then it was something they were hearing their entire life. Mm -hmm. Good. And they were, uh, the kids were memorizing Iliad, which was five times as long. So they could definitely remember that. They could remember something that was shorter. 
Yeah, so that was an example from later on, uh, like Greek cultures, but the same would be said of the Jewish children. They had to learn Torah off by heart, either a lot of it or all of it. Like the more gifted they were, the more they landed up learning. So there were many children who learned all of it off by heart. And again, it was controlled. So it had to be like accurate. They couldn't like give a, a variation of the story of Moses. They were learning everything off by heart. And I don't know if you've ever really focused on how big the Old Testament is. That is a lot of information. And it's a lot of just like factual information. Like yeah. Measurements. Like how big yeah. was the temple was. And the genealogies, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is which is why it's not hard to see why at the beginning of Matthew and in Luke they have a genealogy and it's just like son of son of because they had to learn it as kids so they easily made the the link between Jesus being from those lines they didn't have to go consult you know Wikipedia and try and trace it and figure out "Mm, did Jesus descend from Judah and stuff like that they were just like well we already know who his father came from because mm, that's how much we learn, right? Uh, some more. There's lots, lots of stuff. Nick, you've been quiet. Do you have anything to say? Well, wouldn't they be because they were eyewitnesses? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they saw what happened. So it's they easy to remember it. something you saw. And being an eyewitness, it's easier to write down because your first first person interaction really mm-hmm. good anything else there's so many things so many things the holy spirit yeah <laughs> yes for, like the, for christians yeah, yeah for christians who believe that the holy spirit is a thing that we can rely on like that's even more so that it's believable because not only was Jesus an important figure in our specific religion, but the Holy Spirit also helps guide us. And so with the Holy Spirit and our own personal beliefs and stuff, then of course it was like Yeah. Again, when you're talking to a skeptic, you can't say that. But for Christians, that's a good point. Jesus already promised that the Holy Spirit would come and help them remember everything he said. So, I mean, geez, he didn't even need to do that because they already had such a great oral tradition. But then he, on top of it, said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit so you really remember exactly what I said. Anyone else want to give an opinion? Um, I think someone already, I think Dalton might have already said this, but I'm going to say it again because like this is the one that like I don't know hit me the hardest and that I thought was the coolest the fact like I had never like actually like internalized the fact that Jesus probably said those parables or said these things like hundreds of times like probably even to like different crowds like the disciples heard it so many times like and that's so cool to me and that adds so much um, validity to like the gospels or whatever they wrote. And so that one's like my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. I think Dalton said something a little different. I think his was generally the stories being repeated and yours was specifically Jesus. Yeah. And both are 
good points, separate but good points. Um, let's see how many. Oh, uh, this is something that the other guy kind of focuses on a little more. Um, one of the reasons why oral tradition was important wasn't only because of illiteracy among a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot, um, but the fact that paper was expensive. So their go-to wasn't, oh, let me write this down. Their go-to was, I'm going to learn this off by heart because paper is expensive. Um, don't let that be your first point if you're ever talking to a skeptic. It's like your fifth or your sixth point, but it's a point. Um, the Q document I brought up is another thing scholars bring up. It was likely there were already written accounts and eyewitness testimonies going around before they even wrote the stuff down. Um, there were no distractions. Like storytelling was their entertainment. To this day, storytelling is our entertainment. We now get it from a TV screen, but storytelling has always been what humans have used to entertain themselves. And so they didn't have TV or internet and stuff like that. So when it was fun time, it was story time. And if you were Christian, what were the stories you're gonna tell? The same Christian stories mm -hmm. over and over and over, right? Um, and uh, <clears throat> that also adds to their learning. No distractions means more focus on being able to actually learn things off by heart and, and spend more time on ministry related things. Um, collective memory of a group. I don't know if we said that, but everyone knowing the same things would be able to correct each other. Uh, I think Dalton said when something's at stake, you remember it better. So we already did that. Yeah. Okay. So together we covered everything. Um, also, just from like, just from like a counseling and family therapy standpoint, like the, so like if more people know the same story or like not even the same story, but different <coughs> stories about the same person, it gives it like, you're able to encapsulate that person more um, because you like, we're different people around the different people that we have relationships with. Um, so like. I have a different relationship with you than I do with him. And the two different stories that you can tell about me, like encapsulate me better than just his story. Mm -hmm. So. <coughs> Last written question that I have, what could be one reason that there was a gap between when Jesus died and when they decided to actually write down the gospels? I got this one. Okay. <laughs> This stood out to me the most in the video because I think like my my mind wanted to like argue against it a little bit, but then like his point was so good that I was like, yeah, I have nothing to say or nothing to argue. Um, but basically, he was saying that it's because we would prefer to have like the eyewitness tell us their story as opposed to like read it down or excuse me, read it from a written document, and so only when like those eyewitnesses started like getting old and dying off where they like, we should write these down so that we can have these after they aren't here. And that's when the Holocaust mm -hmm. thing yeah. came up, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. They had no need to. People were still alive and telling it. Okay. Um, I have an informal question and I'd like to, we're about, 
at the very minimum halfway through this course, um, depending on me pasting two sessions together and stuff I might eliminate, we might even be further, but we're definitely past halfway. And so I'd like to hear from you guys, especially the ones who have been here through most of the sessions, how this has impacted you or your faith or things that have stood out to you, things that have encouraged you. If maybe you've already had a conversation with someone where you've brought up some of these, that would be great. Just kind of anything, just I'd like to get a feel for how you feel about this so far. If you'd like any changes, cause like you're like, wow, this part's really sucky each week and I wish it would stop. So honestly, just any feedback at this point would be great. I'll go first. Um, so I started my new job and I work around a lot of like logical people, like like people who aren't feelers like me. And um, well, feeling's not their first, like, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, um, I've realized that like, because of this course and like delving deeper into like, I don't know, it's just like skyrocketed my confidence in sharing the gospel. Like I, I always like felt it before and I relied too heavily on that. And so I didn't know how to like translate that into words when like sharing the gospel It's like, but don't you feel what I feel? <laughs> and they're like, no. And so I have to start with the logic for most people. That's how we get to the feeling part. And so even at work, like this past week, we would talk about the Bible and I was like, oh my gosh, there's like, and it, it was, it was just great. And it was because of this course. So yeah, I'm, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Kind of going off what Jack said, I feel like I've, I haven't been able to have any conversations about it yet, but I feel like it's just in a different way than a lot of other um, sort of outside groups outside of just church on Sunday um, have been, I feel like I've learned a lot more like very practicable, practical um, and tangible strategies um, to really, um, I don't know, not like argue Christianity, but just um, show the logic of Christianity a lot more to people who are very logic driven. And I don't know, it's boosted my confidence a lot, I think. Awesome. Good to hear. Yeah, I come from like a more feelings based background. Like, I was never taught like why the Bible is true or like even whenever I like did take my faith like as my own I wasn't ever like the campus ministry we were in was never like oh this is why we believe what we believe like they did that with the like baptism and the Holy Spirit but then they didn't like do that about the rest of the Bible it was all like only Acts 1 and 2 but <laughs> like that's a little over exaggerated but <laughs> Um, yeah, so it was very much like a feelings based like thing. And I was like, I think that's where like, I was like, well, if it's not true, though, like, that's where like, I very much like, was like, if it's just feelings based versus like actual truth. And at the beginning of the semester, like when I started counseling before I like before grow groups were a thing yet, I was like, man, like, I just really want to like solidify like the knowledge that I have of the Bible and like the truth that it is and like how factual it is because I feel like that makes me more confident in my faith and like willing to grow it. And because most of the time it was feelings based. So like 
I felt good. It was good, you know. But if I felt bad, like it felt like untrue, like yeah. So I don't know. I was like, I think it's just like solidified my own like knowing that it's truth, like seeing the logic. And I'm not really a logical person, but I think like having feelings founded in facts also like it like both sides make it stronger sorry that was like really long for same for me though like my answer is very similar to yours I've always grew up in like a very feelings-based church and even when I got baptized it was always like based on my feelings and um this just like really solidifies everything that I initially was like believing because of feelings now I'm just like well now there's also like all this historical background that I never knew about really and like I am a very logical person like I already said it but like my mind always like goes to skepticism and so like this is just really kind of like reeling me back in and being like yes like you did come to the faith because of your feelings but there's also so much more that's like rooting you there now so I'm really loving it for that reason. And it's it's building my confidence and like talking to other people about it. I mostly talk to my sister because she lives with me, but um, I mean, she's also a Christian, but every Saturday she'll ask me about like what I learned because it's also really <laughs> interesting for her. Why doesn't she join? She should, she goes to this gym class on yeah. Saturday mornings at like 11 and she's obsessed with it. So <laughs> I don't know if she would come, but I think she, she really likes hearing about it. If she's interested in just getting added to the Facebook group so she can have links and stuff, she's welcome. Okay. Anyone else? Pastor Adam says we have to allow for awkward silences. So this is what well, I thought it was a lot. Of, I'm interested because it's, um, it's a lot of similarities from my bibliography and research class in grad school. Far as having a Christian spin on this, and um, you know, but a lot of the terminology is pretty much the same. Okay. Also, a lot of you mentioned feelings, and I, I don't, I don't want you ever to feel like that's not important, because salvation is not an intellectual thing; it is a spiritual thing, and a lot of the time, feelings follow what's happening in your spirit. Um, but you know, God invented logic and reason and intelligence, you know, so we shouldn't shy away from those things. And like I said, way back in session one, you don't know if you using logic and reason could make a gap for the Holy Spirit to then come and convict the spirit and allow those feelings to come mm -hmm. to the person that you're witnessing to Okay, um, before we do prayers, I have a quick announcement. So tomorrow is International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, something I'm very passionate about. Um, if you're on Facebook and you're ever bored, I have what turned into a 40 minute video of me ranting, asking for donations. Bye Dalton. Uh, oh, he left, I was gonna say if he has prayer requests, he should type them, too late. He told it to me. <laughs> sure okay great okay um so tomorrow 
we're as a church around the world, we're going to pray for these people. Oh, the video, 40 minutes. If you're bored, please watch it. I was supposed to be five minutes. And then I did my Cassandra thing where I can't shut up. And then when I finished and I saw it was 40 minutes, I'm like, oh, but like I got emotional and cried at the end. And I'm like, I can't recreate that in a second time. So I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> just the Holy Spirit to convict people to watch my 40 minute video. <laughs> but essentially, um, without repeating my 40 minute video, there are people that really need help um, in persecuted nations in the world and they get the least help. They get the least missionaries to go there um, and they get the least amount of funds. Again, I quoted like a million statistics in my video, but uh, the only one I'll tell you is that of all the money that Christians earn, only 0.001% goes to unreached people groups and, and they're usually in persecuted nations. Um, these people give up their lives for Jesus, literally. They, they are killed, they are persecuted in terms of getting their houses burned down and chased out of the village or the women are raped and beaten and abused and forced into marriages. Um, kids are killed in front of their parents trying to force the parents to deny Jesus. People are imprisoned in terrible dungeon-like prisons for years and years and years um, and uh, tortured, old-fashioned, crazy torture. Um, and a lot of the time, the outside world doesn't hear about it. And even if they do, like certain organizations like Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors, if they hear about it, they try and get the word out. But again, it's not something that the national media really covers. And so to get these people help is really difficult because most people don't even know about them. And if they, if they have a concept, oh yeah, I know there's persecuted Christians somewhere, they don't really know what to do about it. Um, so if you're interested, please donate to the birthday fundraiser on my page, even if it's $1. Remember most of these people are in like third world nations. So a dollar to them can, can go a long way. Um, so please, please donate. But if you're not going to donate, tomorrow is International Day of Prayer for persecuted, the persecuted church. And uh, there's a poll on our Facebook group if you're interested in joining virtually or in person. Um, I'm going to play some videos from uh, persecuted Christians uh, giving their testimony. Um, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time praying uh, for the persecuted church kind of it's kind of led by a video. So it's like pray for these things and then you stop and pray and um, at the very least, if you won't come tomorrow, please take at least 10 minutes of your day tomorrow and pray for persecuted Christians. If you're not sure what to pray, a simple Google search will help you with that, give you some key pointers of the things that they need, both spiritually and physically. Um, you could also adopt a nation. There's something called the um, World Watch List, which is the 50 most persecuted nations in the world. They updated constantly, but they pretty much remain, the 50 remain the 50. Um, you could always just pick one. And I think if you go to their website and you click on it, um, it'll give you information and you could maybe decide, okay, I'm gonna pick one nation and then really focus on praying for them. And you can get details about what they need because each, each nation is different. Like for example, some, the government doesn't persecute them. The government allows freedom of religion but the, the people in the country are like staunch Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists. And so 
if you convert to Christianity, the government might not do anything to you, but the people will, they'll like beat you up, kick you out of your house, burn down your house, kill your family, stuff like that. So um, maybe you want to research a nation and, and pray for them. But please at least spend 10 minutes tomorrow praying if you're not interested in coming here in person. Um, and then optionally, after we pray, there's a movie I've been wanting to watch for a while. Um, and it's called Tortured for Christ. It's the story of a, a pastor in, um, I want to say it was Romania. But if it wasn't, it was a nation really close to there. Uh, just after World War II ended. And he was imprisoned for 12 years, three years in isolation. And um, he was tortured. Like he has scars all over his body from the torture that they did to him while he was in that cell. And the movie is kind of his story. So we're also going to watch that afterwards. But you could leave before or you could come just for the movie, whatever suits you. Just let me know if you're coming um, because that'll determine what time I'm going to set it at. If no one comes, I'm going to do it early in the morning. But if people come, I'm probably going to do it afternoon-ish. And then for those in person, you can take one of these. There's a tear-out bookmark inside, which like gives you some prayer points for the persecuted church. Jack, have I asked you to close in prayer before? No, you haven't. Okay. Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> All right, will you close for us? Sure. Hey God, thank you so, so much for this community and for Cassandra and for each person involved here this week and any other week. Um, I'm really grateful for this. Um, thank you for the encouragement and for the joy um, and the learning that comes out of it. Um, I pray that each of us during this week um, that we hear from you and that we have, and that we make time for you, God. And I pray that um, you keep us safe and um, those we love safe. Um, and thank you, amen. amen. Remember to tell me if you want to come tomorrow and please remember to pray tomorrow for the persecuted church. Bye.